They're going to be judging me from on high someday. I dream about them. I dream about like them meeting me someday and saying, hey, bro. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are going to catch up. We're also going to talk about the one-year anniversary of the Dobbs decision that paved the way for states across this country to ban abortions. And we're going to talk a little bit about the history of abortion care and why Christians stand against it and why they're wrong. And then later on the pod, Missy and I sat down with a incredible author. He's got a new book out, Jonathan Eig. His new book is King a Life, and it is a fantastic interview. So it's going to be a good pod. Stay tuned. Hello there, Missy. Hey, how are you? I'm doing quite well. Are you going to ask me? I'm a little hesitant. How are, you, how are you doing? Well, I'm better now that you um, told me about that big piece of pepper in my teeth. I mean, we wouldn't well, want the listeners I mean, to hear that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I didn't want to have to look at it. I don't blame you. I appreciate that. I appreciate it. So I realized that uh, we have been, well, we took a week off uh, during the week of Tanner's graduation. Yes. And then we had uh, Jay Call and June Joplin and Elizabeth Lott on last yeah. week talking about true colors. Such a great conversation. So we haven't really talked about our graduation trip. We have not. And because now this podcast is basically our own personal archives, I thought... I would, <laughs> it could, was a whirlwind of a trip. We could it? chronicle a couple of fun stories that happened along the way. Yeah. Um, so our, we obviously made it. Our son walked. He has the diploma in We've hand. got the paperwork to we prove have it. Paperwork, right? It's done. In any case. No takes you back. Or no take how do you say that? Take you back, sir. I'm just gonna wait for you to figure I, it I out. I can't figure it out. It's an old man trying to be hip. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so funny moment was we graduation was at nine AM and apparently this is like an intense sport at at Dartmouth. Yes. And so you, they graduate on the green. So it's outside. So it's not like it's limited theater seating. Or yeah, and this is not like, you know, like down in South Texas kind of heat. It's no, you know, but it's I a mean, nice it did day. Get hot. Anyway, get up, in but. any way, case. So apparently what people do there is you hire seat savers. Yes. You hire other undergraduate students who are still on campus to go basically camp out on a row for you. And you can make some bank. Those I students mean, can. I'll, I'll go up there once a year <laughs> exactly, and do that. I'll yeah. sleep on the chair. So it's kind of, turns into kind of a fun thing for them. And right. so there was a little bit of mis, I wasn't going to do that because I didn't feel that um, strongly about it, mm -hmm. but our son thought we needed to. So he secured a friend. And so we ended up having a seat saver. So it was, it was fun. So we, um, he got there, I like think about like two o'clock in the morning. Oh yeah, it was crazy. And there were like 300 other kids there waiting to get onto the green to like camp out in somebody's spot. So when we showed up early, I mean, there were kids sleeping yeah. on the rows of chairs, but it looked like great fun. Yeah. I mean, Anyways. had their sleeping bags out. Yeah. And yeah Anyways. Sweet. So we still got there early because we 
they can only save so many seats sure. and we needed more than what they could save. So um, while we were waiting for graduation to start, we placed a mobile Starbucks order yes, as one does and sent our older son to go pick it up. So he goes to pick up Starbucks and while he's there, he's waiting and waiting. Well, I went with him. And waiting. Yeah. Y'all waited for we were a long waiting, time. Waiting, and finally I gave up. <laughs> so you came back yes. to sit down and, and so our older son stayed and then he finally texted us. He's like, Hey, they've had a technical glitch and half of the orders got completely erased. What do I do? And I mean, there were hundreds of parents and students uh, oh, in and out. Definitely. Of Cause there's 1200 yeah, graduates. Yeah. So you can imagine what Starbucks was like that morning. So we just told him, do whatever you want to do. You know, if you want to come to see the procession, you know, come back, we're fine. Just forget the coffee. Mm-hmm. So by the time he decided to abandon our order and come back, they had started processing students in. And I don't go to a ton of college graduations, but... But, but this is Ivy League. This is and so Ivy there's League. pomp and Did circumstance. You see our, our nose go up right there. <laughs> so yes, lots of pomp and circumstance. It's, you know, maybe more than other schools. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But there's bagpipes playing and they've got four like lines of students just filing in. They all have their... Well, some, not all of them, but the, you know the ones who are in secret societies have their canes that reveal what secret society they're in. Uh, and I mean, Jake Tapper is—he's you know, on the board of trustees. On, he's sitting on the he's, stage. He's, he's yeah, he's processing in, leading yeah, oh, the students right. in. Yes. So um, the president of the college's last, right. last uh, graduation is lots of going on. Lots going on. So Cole's texting us, and he said, "Hey, they've shut everything down because the kids are processing, and I can't get in." So I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Just wait until they process in and you can come in. Anyways, so there's four aisles of students walking in, and we don't know which one our younger son's going to be in. We just took a chance. So we're standing on the aisle looking and looking to see if we can get a glimpse of our son coming in, Mm -hmm. her younger son. No luck, right? But at the end of the procession, all of a sudden, we see our older kiddo (laughs) processing in. (laughs) At the end of the line of all of these graduates. I mean, and he's got his really cool, you know, sunglasses on. It was very California. Funny. It was And as a kid, as a college graduate from 2020, who did not get a college right. graduation, it was so <laughs> perfectly poignant of a moment that he got to process in with the undergrads. It was awesome. So yeah, that was really funny. Um, and then it, as it turns out, it was great because again, he's a comedic writer and the uh, graduation speakers were Phil Lord, Lord and Jonathan Miller. The Spider-Verse guys. Yeah, Multiverse guys. Multiverse yeah, guys? Yeah, they wrote Spider-Man, the Multiverse. So. Okay, so they're Dartmouth alum. Anyways, if you're into listening to graduation Also did. Speeches. Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. I mean. That was their big How one. could we forget that? Yes, so if you're into listening to those speeches, it was fantastic. It was and fantastic. it was, it couldn't have been more perfect for our older son. So <laughs> let's turn to more serious topics. Oh my gosh, yeah, lots going on in the world. So, I, ironically mm-hmm. enough... Um, we just came upon the one year anniversary of the Dobbs decision. Correct. And I, this, this is where the irony comes in. I was going through a box of old photos uh, recently mm-hmm. and ended up, I came across an old church newsletter from the mid 80s. I thought it was the Baptist Standard. 
Like the Texas well, Baptist newspaper. I wasn't going to call them out, but you go ahead and do that. Yeah, well, it did but work. It's, it back, no, but it's back in the day when your church had an individual. Oh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, See, yeah. there's the church name. Gotcha. It's also the Baptist gotcha. Standard. Okay, gotcha, so gotcha. it's like your your church gets this publication, but it's it's specific to your church. It has right. church information and national information. Sure. So I wasn't going to call them out. but It was did. a state Baptist paper Okay. located in the South. <laughs> in any case... I mean, literally on the very day of the anniversary of the Dobbs decision, I find this publication. I'm like, oh, this is so funny. I don't know why it's in this box, but I'm going to look through it. Mm -hmm. And I found an entire total of a page spread. What year was it? 1980? It was 87. 87. Okay. Okay. Dedicated to an abortion conference that was coming up. Oh, jeez. And it lists... All of these speakers that they're going to have and the features of what they're going to talk about, including educating children about sex, establishing crisis pregnancy centers, working through public policy, um, and supporting state Baptist convention homes for children. Anyways, all the things. And then it, it has, you know, basically information on how to sign up and how to go. Like they're recruiting church members to go and learn about all of the evils of abortion. Right. And I thought, okay, that was 1987. Like I know this kind of campaign started quite a bit before that. And now, you know, all these 50 years later, here we are on the one year anniversary of the Dobbs decision. Right. And I just thought, you know, this is what I grew up under the umbrella of. That's what you grew up under the umbrella of, mm-hmm. and we didn't know any different. But I thought maybe it might be good to take a couple of minutes and talk about what you can speak more to than I can. But like, how did we get here? How did we get to the point that your church, you know, newspaper was taking out a full page dedicated to this? Yeah. Well, I mean, as we have had guests on the show before talking about the history of abortion care in the United States, uh, as well as how the Bible actually speaks about abortion, and believe it or not, it's not against abortion. In fact, there are you know, texts that, heresy. I, I know, texts that heresy actually mentioned. allude to you know, the proper way uh, to have an abortion because of the life of the mother. The life of the mother was so precious uh, to the family unit back, back then, still is today. I mean... I mean, hard decisions have to be made, whether they're today or whether they were thousands of years ago. Nevertheless, how do we get to this point today? Well, what is astonishing to a lot of people is that back in the 60s and and early 70s, uh, very conservative Baptist leaders and pastors were actually advocating for abortion care. Now, the purpose behind that was probably pretty shady and most likely racist in nature and overtone, but it wasn't an issue for them that they were willing to die for. They weren't rallying yeah, against they it. they weren't rallying against it. And either. even sometimes prominent people were preaching in support of it. Right. And in fact, I mean, you can go to First Baptist Church, Dallas, Texas, and listen to a sermon by W.A. Criswell, of all people, who talks about uh, supporting abortion care uh, for women. All of that to say, back in the 60s, Missy, there was another issue going on in the country, especially in the Deep South. What was going on in the 60s? I have no (laughs) idea. It might have nothing to do with our interview today. Nothing to do with our interview today. 
obviously, it was at the height of the civil rights movement, and it was becoming very evident to very conservative people, many of them Democrat at the time, by the way, uh, the Dixiecrats of the South, that they were going to lose the debate on civil rights, and they were going to lose the debate on segregation in, in public places and schools and and so they began to rethink and retool uh, their strategies. And they were looking for issues in which they, that would play well with their constituency because they could no longer play the race card and segregation and Southern tradition and God. Well, we got to find something to be angry we about. Gotta be, yeah. So if you can't be well, they still are, but if you can't publicly be angry at uh, black citizens in this country, well, let's talk about women. <laughs> let's be mad at them That's for the a next while. That's logical step. <laughs> I get you. Uh, and so all of a sudden, abortion is the issue. And they come full force because obviously it had worked its way through the courts. You have Roe v. Wade that is... Um, uh, it's adjudicated. Supreme Court comes out in favor of uh, of abortion nationwide. Also, what was happening is that the South was really coming to grips in an identity crisis because coming out of civil rights. But then they get this Southern Baptist politician from Georgia that talks like them, that says he is a born-again Christian. But then he says stuff about the family, about there are all kinds of different families. You know, we maybe we shouldn't hate gay people. Maybe we shouldn't, right. you know, ostracize uh, you know, gay couples and divorcees and mixed race <laughs> couples. And, and then also looking at abortion care as a, a family issue because of what the Bible talks about. Mm-hmm. And you know that th- that should be a decision made within a family and the family and the woman uh, between, or the woman and her physician, and her I should say. Yeah, exactly. So, all all of this is just coming to fruition in the early seventies. Uh, President Carter obviously is in office. He's the Southern uh, politician I was talking about. Uh, and so Paul Weirich, uh, who was a political guru at the time. Um, starts floating some ideas, and it was him and Jerry Falwell and uh, Pat Robertson and uh, I can't remember his name. Guy down in Texas, um, his last name's Robinson too. Uh, started trying to figure out a way in which they could mobilize mobilize the, the people, and abortion was that issue, and. And it's, it's one of those low-cost issues mm-hmm. for them because it doesn't cost them anything. Mm-mm. All they need is a villain. All they need is to rail against that, that villain. And that's what they did. And it, they found a very suave politician who spoke like them and thought like them was not mm-hmm. really a churchgoer at all. <laughs> But their savior was was Ronald Reagan, and they turned on Carter like that. And so the other thing that happened about, about that same time, 
um, that kind of, I, I mean, lots of things were happening. We're talking obviously about one aspect of how this became such an issue. There are, are, are others, you know, that play into this, but another thing that happened is technology mm-hmm. was advancing to the point where we now had sonograms available yeah. and you now had, um, the ability to kind of see in the window of the womb and, and right. those, those images played so well in this campaign. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, we talk about, and I think you've talked about to, to a phys- physician about, you know, the heartbeat in the beginning, like we think it's a heartbeat, mm-hmm. but it's the mother's blood pumping, pumping through, through the umbilical cord, which That's is, actually which hear, is yeah. pumping the heart through right. the baby for a while. So, yeah. you know, all of these things, but, but you you give just enough information and you give these little images and then you put these, you know, bright eyed babies on a billboard and how could you dare take this life? I mean, it's just, it, you're right. It plays so easily. It was so low cost. It was such a low hanging fruit. And it, you know, it's a direct result of conservatives in this country. Uh, and it had nothing to do with Republican and Democrat at the time. Cause like I said, most of these folks were Democrat at the mm-hmm. time. It has to do with this ideology when they lost the debate and the overall debate and the moral debate on civil rights. They had to have another topic, and that topic was abortion, and they have run with that topic for decades now. Now, here's my question to you. Uh-oh. Obviously, the country is in a much different place than it was back in the 70s and 80s. Abortion is overwhelmingly supported by people in this country, even people of faith. Mm-hmm. They are losing this debate. Now, I know the Dobbs decision through all kinds of Well, you can strategically turmoil. like right. manipulate the system, but obviously. They're, but they're losing this debate. Mm-hmm. And eventually, my hope and prayer is that there is going to be some type of legislation that comes forth maybe out of Congress or another bill or another case is argued before the Supreme Court. And there's going to be another situation where abortions will be allowed in this country in every state. Mm-hmm. Because they're losing that, they've got to find another villain, Missy. Who is it? Trans. Trans people. That's what they do. They'll find another one. They'll find another one. And they'll start passing laws. They'll use it as a wedge issue. They will rail against it. They will villainize these people. It costs them nothing to do it mm-hmm. because you know, all it is is it's political fodder for them. And so they don't care who they hurt. They don't care what their words do to people, leading them to, to make you know very difficult decisions uh, in their life. And so it's just, it, it's just a shame. I mean, I'm just I'm ashamed of that this comes out of predominantly a faith group and a faith tradition that, that I'm a part of. And so I know angers me. circling back to today, the one year anniversary or not today, but this week, the one year anniversary, I do know that I've listened to some fantastic narratives on um, like NPR's podcast. And I've read things. We have an article in our, one article in our database. I know from someone who went through a crisis situation, yeah. you know, in the, in the wake of Dobbs and we have others that have written about it. Um, I'll have Cliff link to some of those in the show notes, but I encourage everyone to go seek out those stories, to read the individual's narratives about how this is so much more than just abortion care in the way that, that the anti-abortion folks frame it. Mm-hmm. You know, this is health care. And I, we happen to know um, of a medical office in our state that lost 
many, many of their employees because with, you know, the repeal of some of these things, they say, I can't in good conscience practice medicine here anymore. Mm-hmm. And so this is not, this is so much more complex. Yeah, it's, and, it's regressive, It's but the, the consequences of those regressive policies are being played out right now. We're a year, we're a year out from this now. States like Oklahoma, Texas, uh, Missouri, and others who have banned abortion pretty much completely. Um, it's hard to get a medical student to come and study in your, your college and your university mm-hmm. because it's been banned. And so they're not going to teach that technique. And so if I'm going to go to a university or college and I'm going to spend that kind of money to be trained for you know a, a medical career, who's going to hire me if I don't have this training? It just, it snowballs and it's, it's so much deeper than what, you know, the, the pro-lifers want to paint this situation as it is healthcare. It is about so much more and so many more situations than what they like to paint. So I encourage you to go and see you, it, would take one quick Google search to find numerous podcasts and articles. Like I said, I'll have Cliff put ours in the show notes. Read, read, inform yourself, know the circumstances. I would bet that anybody listening today knows someone who has had to have some form of abortion care because at the end of the day, a care for a miscarriage is abortion, abortion care. care. Yep. So That's exactly there right. There you have it. Well, um, like I said, it's, uh, it's was has been a devastating year seeing all the fallout, especially in states like ours. Uh, but there are good people. There are good people working on this issue, like uh, Sky Perryman, the folks at uh, Democracy Forward, others, Catholics for Choice. Uh, a lot of good people working on this, knowledgeable, and I'm hoping it can uh, be overturned sometime soon. Absolutely. Well, you and I sat down with a prolific author this week, Jonathan Eig. Uh, has a brand new book out about uh, Martin Luther King called King of Life. And it's, it's great. It's a really good read. Absolutely. I look forward to talking about it after. Yep, absolutely. So stay tuned. Have the last few years shifted your faith? I'm Brett Harris, and last year I walked away from the pulpit without a plan. I just knew where I was wasn't where I was supposed to be. And I'd love for you to join me as I wander and wonder about faith and scripture and how we can continue to follow Jesus' example, even when our path forward is unclear. Find God Knows Where today in your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us. Jonathan Eig is the best-selling author of six books, including his most recent, King A Life, which the New York Times held as a monumental new biography on Martin Luther King Jr. Jonathan's previous book, Ali Alive, won the 2018 Penn American Literary Award and is a finalist for many other incredible prizes. His works have been translated into more than a dozen languages. He served as a consulting producer for the PBS series Muhammad Ali, which was directed by Ken Burns. Esquire magazine named Ali Alive one of the 25 greatest biographies of all time. 
Joyce Carol Oates called it an epic of a biography and reads like a novel. He's appeared on the Today Show, NPR's Fresh Air, and The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. But his greatest claim to fame, according to his parents, is that his name once appeared in a Jeopardy question, which was solved correctly for $200. Jonathan, congratulations on arriving at this incredible moment of being a Jeopardy question. But more importantly, congratulations on this incredible book about Dr. King. And welcome to Good Faith Weekly. That's the new pinnacle of my career, joining you guys for this talk. Wow. Wow. That's right. Well, Jonathan, I have to say, first and foremost, the book was fantastic. Um, Mitch and I just devoured it and loved it. But I have to also admit being a little bit nervous going into it. And so I want to ask you about entering the project. As you've written about some incredible individuals, Luke Gehrig, Jackie Robinson, as Mitch mentioned, Muhammad Ali, did this project feel a little riskier, a little weightier? I mean, you're writing about somebody we've all just um, have this image in our mind. What, what did that feel like when you were considering this project? It was really scary. I mean, it's scary to take on any biography because you're basically taking on someone's life story. And I don't know these people. They didn't ask me to take on their life stories. They didn't choose <laughs> me as their biographer. So there's, you know, there's an act of hubris really, um, but it's also a, an enormous responsibility that I approach with, with great humility. And I feel like I have to earn it, um, that I have to win the approval of the, their spirits in a way that they, you know, they're going to be judging me from on high someday. I dream about them. I dream about like, them, them meeting me someday and saying, hey, bro. No. <laughs> <laughs> Not actually. Um, yeah. yeah, but it's especially true with, with Martin Luther King Jr. because he is one of our most sainted figures. I consider him the greatest American, period. Mm. Um, and to take on that life story um, was was daunting and to know that like the key I felt to doing it was being honest, not shying away from his weaknesses, from his faults, embracing those and uh, allowing the reader to see him as a fully human person um, that bears greater risk. That's what I think for me, it was a little bit, um, I was apprehensive going into it because I knew that, like you said, you were going to talk about him as a complete and whole person and even myself was like I don't I don't really know what I want to know <laughs> but yeah. it, the book was fantastic you did a brilliant job with it yeah well and, um, and, uh, I first came uh, to know the book through an interview you did on MSNBC's Morning Joe and so as I s- sat there listening to the interview and uh, you know how you described your writing process and just the, the daunting task of writing about uh, Reverend King, I thought to myself, okay, what else has this Joker written? So I went back. And so, I mean, uh, Ali, uh, Lou Gehrig, I mean, Jackie Robinson, The Pill. I mean, you have written about some really incredible topics and individuals throughout history. So going into this biography, I just had really high expectations. And my friend, you met every one of them. You did a fabulous job uh, detailing his life and really humanizing this mythological figure that we have in the country. Well, thanks. You know, the challenge for me is trying to find ideas that I'm passionate about, but also ideas that there's something new to say where they still matter today. And uh, I think, you know, King, one of the reasons I pursued this book is because we've watered down his message over the years. We talk about, I have a dream, and that's about as far as we go. We forget that so much of what he had to say really um, is still poignant today, that he he talked about 
economic inequality. He talked about peace. Um, he talked about materialism, things that, you know, we, we didn't really pay attention to. And, and we've lost sight of some of his really, his Christian radicalism mm -hmm. uh, because we've reduced him to sort of a, you know, a grade school level education program. Uh, we, so I wanted to write a book that would not only uh, force readers to think about him as a human being, but also to confront some of his more radical ideas. Yeah. And I love how you began the book. Uh, you began the book talking about his grandparents and his parents. And one of the things I think you did brilliantly was set the context historically for King's uh, career, his ministry, his passion for social justice across the board. Because I think we forget how closely King was to having relatives who were slaves. And mm -hmm. it was not that far away. Sometimes we, we think of it, especially in historical terms, as being a long time ago. But the reality is he had heard firsthand stories and secondhand stories from his family of what it was like growing up in the South. That's right. You know, his grandparents were born into slavery. Mm -hmm. His uh, father, his father grew up as a sharecropper until the, until the age of 12, when he finally decided that he was going to break out of this cycle. And his father, Martin Luther King Sr., is a real hero in that respect, because at, at the age of 12, he leaves the farm with his shoes tied over his shoulder so he doesn't wear them out. He only has one pair of shoes. So he walks barefoot out of Stockbridge and makes his way to Atlanta, where he teaches himself to read and write and becomes a preacher and determines that he's not only going to preach to save souls, he's going to preach to save America, that he's going to help black people in his community, in his church, think about how they can fight for justice. And that eventually paves the way for his son to take that fight globally and to appreciate how the words in the Bible how the words in the constitution are not going to really be fulfilled until we start really treating each other as, as brothers, as, as equal in the eyes of God. And that's really where it all comes from. It comes from the, the progress that his parents and grandparents made. So Jonathan, I've got a few kind of rapid fire questions I want to ask um, about uh, the book and about your process, but from your research, what do you think was, were the most pivotal moments for King, both personally and for the country at large? Well, I think the first pivotal moment is the one that comes in Montgomery, Alabama, when, um, you know, Rosa Parks sets off this boycott and the people in Montgomery have been, you know, angry for a long time about the busing mm -hmm. and the fact that um, they're treated like second class citizens. And the buses are just one area in which they're treated like second class citizens. But when they decide to protest, they're looking for somebody to speak at the first meeting. Uh, as they decide whether they want to boycott and for how long they're going to boycott. And King is, is 26 years old. He's new in town. He's not looking to get involved. He really isn't even sure he wants to be involved at all, much less lead. And he's asked to give the opening speech that night. And he agrees reluctantly. He has a, lot, he has a panic attack, to be honest, um, before the speech, wondering what he's going to say. And most of the people in the audience have never seen him or heard him before. He's new in town, as I said, and he gives this speech that really just it's it's a miraculous speech um, again with no preparation. He says, you know, we've come together here today for serious business to determine whether we, the black people of America, the black people of Montgomery can lead this nation, can 
make true the words in the Bible, make true the words in the Constitution. Because if we are wrong in our demands here, the Constitution is wrong. If we are wrong, God Almighty is wrong. And he finds this voice, he finds this message that not only really inspires the people in the audience that night, but even makes people who are unsure uh, how they feel about equal rights reconsider themselves. So this message resonates in the North, it resonates in the South, even some white segregationists begin to think, wow, you know, he's, they're not trying to destroy American society, they're trying to make it better. Mm-hmm. And that's the moment really that he becomes Martin Luther King Jr. And it's interesting that you say that. I just, it just hit me. We have an almost 26 year old and this, that story <laughs> just landed ready? very differently. <laughs> is, she, is she or he ready to lead? He, uh, Maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's a comedian. He's a comedian. Uh, he's yeah. literally a comedian. So. Yeah. A but King didn't way. think he was ready at 26 either. <laughs> you know, he, it was thrust on him. That does hit a little bit differently. Okay, so what surprised you the most in your research that you learned about? You know, I guess one of the big surprises was, and it shouldn't have been a surprise, was that, you know, he he had doubts. He had insecurities. He felt badly when things went wrong and felt like the Americans weren't listening to him and after a while, you know, in the mid late sixties, his popularity really just started to fall off. People felt like he was asking for too much too soon. And then when he began speaking out about the Vietnam war, they said, you know, that's not really your thing. Stick to what, you know, even though he had a Nobel peace prize. Um, and, and that hurt him. You know, we have these FBI recordings of his conversations because the FBI was bugging his, his phones and his hotel rooms. And we can hear him saying to his friends, I feel like nobody's listening to me anymore. So that kind of humanity, that kind of, you know, doubt. And yet the fact that he perseveres, that he goes on, even knowing that his own government is trying to damage his marriage and destroy the movement, he still pushes forward. That kind of faith really inspired me. Did you learn anything about him that disappointed you? Oh yeah. Lots of things. Uh, Sadly, you know, we already knew he was a plagiarist. Um, The plagiarism was worse than, than I had previously believed. Uh, we knew that he wasn't faithful to his wife and that was worse too. Um, you know, he had, he struggled. He, he had moments of, uh, of depression. Uh, he was hospitalized for exhaustion many times. Um, you know, that's I, 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 mostly, I, I felt like the, the moral failures are hard, especially for a, sure. a faith leader, mm-hmm. but he, he struggled with it himself. You know, he, he felt great guilt about his, his weaknesses. Were there any moments of levity and humor as you were doing your research. Oh yeah. He was a funny guy. He loved <laughs> to tell jokes. Um, you know, he would, he would lighten the mood, you know, they'd be getting ready for a March and, and he'd say, well, and look around the room and he'd say, well, you know, at least two or three of you ain't coming back. It might be me, but if it is me and I survive, here's the sermon. I'm going to, here's, let me tell you what your eulogy is going to sound like. And then he'd, you know, he'd make fun of the way they ate and the way they, you know, snored. And he'd give this eulogy that was just like hysterical would have them all in stitches. And it was a way of relieving the tension. That's awesome. Um, he was a great, great, funny guy. Okay. Well, before I turn it back over to Mitch, I have one more short answer question. Who do you think is the unsung hero in his story? Well, there are many, but, um, you know, his wife, Coretta, for sure, mm-hmm. you know, she doesn't get the credit she deserves and, and he never gave her the credit she deserved. You know, he fell in love with her because she was a great activist. Right. She had more experience as an activist than he did when they met. Right, sure. He'd been to Antioch College and had been involved in all these protest movements. And that really attracted him. Uh, but once they got married, he insisted that she really focus on housekeeping and, and raising the kids. And he didn't want her 
out front in the movement and he didn't want women in general um, as leaders of the movement. He struggled. That yeah, was another area of weakness for him. But Coretta Scott King is a, is a hero and is really um, in many ways the fire in his belly because her she would not be, be silent. And she's the one who's pushing when they win the Nobel. When he wins the Nobel Prize, she says, we have a greater responsibility than ever now. We have to focus on international issues and hunger and poverty. We have to really rededicate ourselves to the much larger cause. The scene you talk about where they're having a discussion and he tells her, but I was called by God, you know, and she said, well, I feel like I was too, essentially. And that, that exchange between them, I don't know, it, it just made me tense. It made me, a little, it was a little bit cringy to think about. Yeah, um, very cringy. Yeah, it, it was an interesting, I, I totally agree with you. I feel like she, she deserves a little bit more credit. When, the, when she knew that the government was using, um, you know, her husband's um, personal life to try to destroy them, uh, she just doubled down, you know, more determined than ever not to let that happen, not to let his um, not to let his work be un, undone. Mm-hmm. Well, Jonathan, I want to talk about King, the radical, the revolutionary, because as we tend to do as a society, we encounter these figures who are larger than life, who inspire during those critical moments in history, and we elevate them to these godlike figures. And one of the things I appreciate about your biography is that not only do you humanize King, but you really bring out his radicalness, especially his deconstruction of of the Bible, the gospel message, and the parallel between King and Jesus, I think, is important because one of the great quotes in the book is when you write, evil societies always destroy their consciences. And because of that, we must never forget that figures like Jesus, like King, were assassinated, not because they looked at the culture and said, gather around the campfire, sing Kumbaya, and love one another, because they were looking for systemic, long-term change in societies. And they were advocating for it, and they were pushing for it. And when you push for radical change systemically, the system is going to fight back and in many cases kill you. Yeah, that's sad, um, but well said. You know, um, obviously these were radical figures. We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about Martin Luther King. We're talking about figures who challenged the status quo, and that represents a threat to those who are in power. And those who have an interest in maintaining um, the power structure as it is um, see those prophets, see those rebellious figures as a threat to their to their what they control and and it's frustrating because obviously we recognize and celebrate them in retrospect mm-hmm. and the question is what can we do to avoid making the same mistake again why do we continue to shun radical voices why do we continue to fear them and that's the question that you know we need to ask in in, in looking at at the lives of you know jesus and and king and any of our rebels you know uh, when i interviewed harry belafonte for this book he said you know the reason we don't really read King in schools anymore beyond I have a dream is that we don't like to teach radicalism. We're threatened by it, but you know, this country was born of radicalism. Christianity is born of radicalism. So um, we need to find a way to, to work that into the fabric of our society to understand that 
Um, the status quo needs to be challenged. Um, if we don't speak up for what we believe in, we're going to all be trampled by authoritarianism, by, you know, conformity, by the, the desire to conform. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, great leaders emerge uh, because they, they have the courage to, to challenge that. And I think one of the things you do really, really well in the book is you you take this moment in history, and obviously it's always a snapshot from our vantage point as we do you know our, our research and deconstruction and construction of the error and the person. But you take this moment in time, and as I was reading it, I, I could not help parallel. 63 to 65 with 1517 and the individual that kings you know the king is takes his name after martin luther you know nails his 95 thesis to the door of the wittenberg chapel in seven in 1517 and sparks the reformation do you think in your research and understanding of the king narrative that that period of time from Montgomery to his death has sparked something in this country to finally address one of its original sins and that that revolution is still happening today. Because I think we miss the point that he was, that that King was so committed to this. This just wasn't a social exercise for him. This was rooted in theology. This was rooted in his conscience. He could not let it go. He was always fighting for it. So do you think the echoes of that movement still exist today and that we are seeing that in what is going on in the country today with you know, in 2020 with Black Lives Matter and everything that's going on today when it comes to racial justice. Yeah, I think there's no question that we're still seeing it. You know, Dr. King famously said, and he was quoting an abolitionist, that the the arc of history bends toward justice. And sometimes it feels like it's bending back the other way and we have to sort of take it on faith that it's bending and that we may not be able to see even in our own lifetime, in King's short lifetime, I'm not sure he felt like at times that he was seeing enough of that arc uh, bending in the right direction, but you've got to believe uh, that, that it is in the long run. And certainly during King's lifetime, we saw more progress in a short amount of time than America had in a long time. And, and yet there's always a backlash, right? Um, you think about the March on Washington, perhaps the high point when we see on national television, millions, tens of millions of people watching as black and white people came together in harmony, literally singing in harmony and holding hands. And there's this moment of hope that America might really be turning a corner. We might finally be ready to shed the original sin of racism in this country and move toward an equal society, a society built on, on love and not divided by race. And yet several days later, the FBI issues a memo saying that King is a threat, not King must be saved. King must be his, must be protected because he has this beautiful vision of American society. No, he's seen as a threat. And it gets back to your earlier question. He's a threat to the existing power structure, to the white um, dominated society that has its current hold on power. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just, you know, really sad because it leads our, our own, inst- our own government to try to undermine his work, to try to divide and conquer the civil rights movement. That having been said, the work continues. And one of the reasons I wrote this book is that I hope that people will find his words helpful in our current struggle. That um, if we if we look at the real king, the radical king, we can see that he's speaking about some of the same conditions we're, we're facing today. And you point out 
I mean, because we do, and, and Belafonte was so right that it's hard for us to get past that. I have a dream speech, but I mean, within 30 days, you have the bombing at uh, 16th street in Birmingham and King vocalizes that that dream feels like a nightmare. And a lot of times I feel like we are living in this nightmare, but holding on to King's dream for a better tomorrow. You mentioned the the quote uh, that King uses of the abolitionist who says, uh, the arc of the moral universe bends slowly, but it bends towards justice. I remember using that very quote in Washington, D.C. one time, and a black father raised his hand and said, yeah, preacher, I get that, but I need to I need it to bend 90 degrees because my son's are being shot at in the street. Yeah. They're living in hell. How do you live in that nightmare that King was talking about, but hold on to that dream, the standing on the mountaintop looking towards the promised land? Well, I think King vocalized that better than anybody because he said that you have to believe you have to maintain faith because this is what God has told us that God has told us that we are all, made in the image of God, that we are, the, the, these, these ideas of race and nationality, um, ethnicity, they're, they're man-made and that we don't have to adhere to them. And, you know, I think that's what kept him going. And one of the things that always strikes me is that in late in life, in his last year, after he gave this stunning sermon at, at uh, Riverside Church, in which he really summarized his, his theology and summarized his beliefs and explained why he had to speak out against the Vietnam War, that he had to do what the Bible commands, regardless of whether it's politically expedient. You know, one of his best friends called him and said, I didn't like that speech. Yeah. And we know this because the FBI is recording his calls and we can read the transcripts of this conversation. And his, one of his best friends says, it didn't sound like you and it's going to really hurt us. You know, it's going to damage our fundraising abilities in the North and we're going to lose the support of the, of the president. And King just stops and says, don't you know me? Don't you know what I've been doing all along? I've been following in the steps of Jesus. I've been following what the Bible commands us to do. I can't pick and choose. I'm not a politician. What I did might've been politically unwise, but it was not morally unwise. And he's the rare leader who's actually trying to live up to the moral values that he's been raised with, that he believes, um, you know, have shaped his, his whole body, his whole, ent- his whole being. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's a, you know, a long winded answer to your question, but I think that we have to just continue to believe that, that we can do better. Absolutely. That, that scene where he says, do you not know me at all? I mean, I that got was like, Levinson, right? That uh, yeah, asked me about Levinson. Yeah, yeah. I got like garden of Gethsemane. Did you, <laughs> yeah. When yeah. Jesus is looking yeah. at the disciples, he's like, have yeah. you not been listening to anything I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That's what popped in my mind. So, okay. So as we've talked about Jonathan, you, you know, we like to mythologize these historical figures. Um, we're seeking to, to have these heroes who are, just unattainable for us as human beings. But in the epilogue, you wrote a quote that just jumped out at my, out at me. And you said in Halloween King, we have hollowed him. And you later go on to state, um, I'm paraphrasing here, but his life and lessons are smoothed and polished beyond recognition. And sometimes, and we miss the call for fundamental change to the nation's character that he called for. So with that said, and with that in mind, what, what ultimately do you want readers to walk away from this book and, and take with them? I guess I want them to 
love and, and respect this man, but also to be challenged by him. Mm. And the problem when you go and visit the National Monument and read those inspirational quotes on the wall is that they make you feel good. And King didn't want us to feel good. He didn't want us to feel comfortable. He wanted us to struggle uh, with, with, with the work that needs to be done. He wanted us to get our hands dirty and he wanted us to suffer if necessary to make a better world. And we, we don't do that if we just stick to the easy parts of King's story. I love that. One, one little note, this is just a side note that of um, something you talked about that I was surprised by was when you said you went to see the MLK Memorial in DC and that the gift shop didn't even have any of his books. <laughs> Yeah, that was heartbreaking. I just, um, I don't know. Because again, it's, you know, it's hallowing him and we let's just look at this beautiful monument. Right. Um, and let's look at the quotes we've chosen that we feel are the most inspirational. But let's, but, but if you want to go deeper, if you want to really understand his message, you got to go somewhere else. Yeah. And I'm happy to say that um, one of the guides at that monument, one of the people who leads the tours, read my book and said that he uh, is going to talk to management about stocking some of King's books in the store. <laughs> so we're having an impact. That's well, awesome. That's good. Yeah. That's well, good. we often say, you know, there's a lot of Christians out there that worship Jesus, but never really read or understand what he said. Right. We like to pull quotes <laughs> from him as well. Yeah. We pull these, you know, <laughs> lovely quotes from Jesus, but you know, all that other stuff. You know. That's right. We talk about often about being getting comfortable with the discomfort. Yes. And like you said, we can't, we can't camp out in these like feel good interpretations of, of snippets of something somebody said, but yeah. we have to be uncomfortable. We have to continue the work. Absolutely. And if you really want to know about King's theology, read Howard Thurman because Thurman just shaped his theological construct tremendously. Absolutely. That's the one book he always kept with him was, was Howard Thurman's book. So, well, Jonathan, it has been a distinct pleasure for us, an honor for us. Thank you so much for writing this tiny, small little biography <laughs> of King Alive. It reads quick, though. It reads fast. It, it really does. And, you know, just a lot like the, the Ali book. Uh, it does read like this beautiful novel that, you know, the ebb and flow of difficult times and challenges, but also times of inspiration. Uh, just, it's wonderfully constructed. You did a great job uh, putting it together and it is available right now, wherever our listeners uh, choose to pick up their books. So we certainly encourage them to do so. But Jonathan, before we let you go, we've got one last question. You know, what's coming. Uh, and Missy's <laughs> going to ask it. I do, but I'm throwing an audible. I'm going to oh, give okay. you a little bit of a curveball and ask first, what's your next project we can look forward to? Do you have one yet? Oh, I don't know yet. I'm still working on it. So tell your listeners to shoot me some ideas. Oh, okay. great. Okay. I'll, I'll be on the email after this. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So Jonathan, as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of our conversation today and your work, what is your more to tell? One of the really great things about working on this King book was that I got to interview dozens of people, scores of people who knew Martin Luther King Jr. personally. And I don't often give myself credit for being smart, but I was smart enough to recognize that the time was was now to do that. And I raced around the country before COVID hit and met with 
these people who who really knew him well. And it was one of the most moving experiences of my life. And I, I learned that the hard way, because often as a journalist, you know, as a young reporter, I failed to ask the really good questions. You know, I, I interviewed some folks, you know, I interviewed Dizzy Gillespie, the great jazz musician, oh, and never wow. asked him about Charlie Parker. Um, <laughs> but I will leave you with one word of wisdom. I did ask Dizzy Gillespie. He, you know, we, I asked him, um, he said he still practiced trumpet every day. He was 70 years old. And I thought, Dude, you're Dizzy Gillespie. Why, why are you still practicing? Because I was a musician and I hated practicing. I said, dude, why are you still practicing? And and Dizzy Gillespie just laughed and he said, it's not what you know, it's what you do. Oh. Wow. And that little quote has been pinned to my bulletin board ever since. Oh, well, it's not man. what you know, it's what you do. And I, I've tried to live up to those words. Oh, that That's is fantastic. fantastic. It's not what you know, it's what you do. We're going to have to pin that on the wall of the office here too. Absolutely. So may get that for your office. <laughs> it's probably not wise. On your part. <laughs> Jonathan Ig, he is the author of an incredible book about Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., King Alive. You need to pick it up right now because it is incredible. Jonathan, thank you thank you so much for your time and this work. Uh, it's been a pure joy. Thank you. I enjoyed talking to you. Missy, I don't know about you, but I was really inspired by our conversation with Jonathan. Um, like I said in the intro and during the conversation, I just was blown away by his book. I've read biographies about King uh, before, but he just he did such a good job with this one. He really humanized King, I think. He he really did. And, and admittedly, this is my first King biography since maybe, I don't know, third grade. Like, <laughs> Little picture book, the little you know, like yeah. the book reports of of your I don't know a long time ago, right. um, and so the old SRA kit. I knew when you were, you know, had had seen him in an interview and said we have to get this book and we need to see if we can have Jonathan on the show. I like I alluded to in the interview, I was a little nervous because you do kind of think I what I know of this person, what I want to know of this person is what the image I choose to have in my mind. And sure. I knew um, that, that this book was, was very much going to humanize yeah. him. And I, I, I'm glad for that. I think it was wonderfully written. Yeah. And I, and I'm sure he's a little nervous coming on the show too. Oh, I'm sure he was nervous <laughs> coming on the show. Right. Yeah. Because the interview I saw, he was on morning Joe on MSNBC. Oh, I'm sure he was <laughs> sitting right beside Willie. And <laughs> so. He stepped up to us. Yeah, though, he did. Right? That's right. <laughs> Anyways. So I thought I would ask you first and then I'll answer the question. Sure. But was there something in the book that you learned that kind of took you back that you didn't know? You know, I, I knew a lot of that uh, information and it was, uh, really kind of rehashing some of it, but the way I put it in a narrative format really helped me mm -hmm. kind of understand how everything was at play and how the red scare was playing into the ostracization of King by the federal government, especially Hoover. Um, and then just how they used, how they gained information about him mm -hmm from his personal life, from his professional life, and use that and weaponize that to try to bring him down. And he was a much better man than I don't than I could have been, I think, because it would have been very tempting to say, is this worth it? 
and he just kept fighting. I think for me, there are a couple of things. One, just I, like I mentioned in the interview that he was 26 when he first kind of took on this right? responsibility. Exactly. Like we said, we have a child that's about to be that age and you're going, huh, huh. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> um, that, and then I think the ebb and flow of his popularity was kind of surprising to me because again, now mm-hmm. we have a whole holiday and I mean, it, you are not an actual real human being of any worth if you don't post a quote of his on that day. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just like we have built him into this thing. And so the ebb and flow of his popularity kind of was surprising to me. Um, but the other thing, the the biggest thing, and I'm probably the last one to, to realize this is the plagiarism. Yeah. I was, I was surprised by that, but I, the line where uh, he says that King grew up in the tradition of preachers who presumed, presumed that words are shared assets, not personal belongings. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh my goodness. That was such an interesting, I mean, I remember I was I was walking when I heard that and I just had to stop and like marinate on that for a minute because mm-hmm. in a way that's not untrue. Right. So anyways, I just thought that was interesting because in today's day and age, you know, that is automatic fail or kicked out of school or you lose your job. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just... Funny story, we know a preacher here in town who got fired because he was... <laughs> dis- yeah. Oh my goodness, I just thought about that. <laughs> yes. He got fired because he was caught plagiarizing sermons. He was, exactly. Wow. Yeah. Anywho, that was what surprised me. Yeah. Yeah, it, you know, I'd heard that about King and his career all the time, but I also, you know, that, that shared idea and words are, are meant to be shared. Um, you know, at some point, yeah, I mean... I have probably been guilty of plagiarism before. I do try to cite everything when I write or when I speak, um, you know, but there's just so many good things out there that you're unaware of, or you may have heard something that's stuck in your mind mm-hmm. by a professor or by another preacher or a politician, a leader somewhere in your community. And you don't really, you don't really remember where you do. Right. You know, and so you, you quote it or you paraphrase it thinking it's your own words, but probably knowing in the back of your mind, it probably is not your own words. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, because I plagiarize, plagiarize you all the time because you have such witty... You know, witty sure, <laughs> sure. That's why I just use the verbal vomit my own personal stories. <laughs> then we know they're not plagiarized because nobody would write this crap. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. But uh-huh. in any case, the other thing that we talked about a little bit in the interview that I think is worth maybe spending a couple of minutes on mm-hmm. is just how much we have romanticized King. We've romanticized his... Um, philosophy of nonviolence and um, the moral argument, all these things, which is true and accurate. Mm-hmm. And the parallel between that and Jesus's message of, you know, love one another and, and all of these things and how we've kind of, we have a little bit perverted both of them in a way that we've forgotten that they were both radicals hated by the power systems and hated by, um, those in control. Yeah. So I thought maybe we could spend a couple of minutes kind of talking about MLK as a radical re- revolutionary and then Jesus as a radical revolutionary. You got like five minutes, go preacher. <laughs> <laughs> you have heard me say this from the pulpit before, and then I'm going to echo it again here. You don't get assassinated by walking around telling everybody, Hey, let's just all get along and love one another. Mm-hmm. That's not how you get executed. You get executed by 
providing a message and living out a message that is inspiring people and pointing out that the system that they're living in is corrupt and needs to be redeemed, Mm -hmm. meaning those in power need to go away. And believe it or not, those in power don't like that message. Shocking. <laughs> Shocking, I tell you. And so you you put a Jewish carpenter on a cross, and you put a Baptist preacher in the crosshairs of a rifle. When did you do that? Mm-hmm. And their message was not one of passivity, but of bold, nonviolent confrontation. Mm-hmm. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, that is a bold statement of humiliation to the one that you were just that just slapped you. I like to think of it as passive aggressive because that's my <laughs> spiritual gift. And you are full of that spiritual gift. I am. I true. mean, it's full gospel. Huh? It is. <laughs> but and and King did the same thing. I mean, he just would not go away, and he would keep marching and keep marching and keep demanding rights and keep reminding people that they need to love their white brothers and sisters. And when you want to hate your black brothers and sisters, and when your black brother says, hey, we need to love you, that's going to piss you off. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just gonna, I mean, it is. We forget how radical that was. But not only that, King knew the system was corrupt and needed to change. And we even see that evolution in his own theology and his own words after the I have a dream speech in Washington. Soon after that, the little girls are killed in Birmingham. Other things begin to evolve with violence and death and the system fights back. And King talks specifically about his dream becoming a nightmare. And the question I think we all have to pose to ourselves is how do we live in this nightmare of a world, holding on to that dream and keep fighting for a better today and tomorrow? And King said it best when he quoted someone else that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. It's so difficult because basically he died for this cause that Mm -hmm. he believed in. And yet, as I was listening to the book and, you know, as I writes about killings of, you know, young black men or the little girls who died or countless others, and he's talking about the headlines and what happened. And I thought this reads exactly like what we're still reading every day. Yep. And it was so maddening. And to think about... You know, I think I mentioned in the interview when, when King nailed his forty de- list of 40 demands to the city hall in Chicago, and the next day there was a support your local police sign in mm-hmm. place of it. And I thought, okay, now we've just, because we can mass produce things, we've just replaced that with a Blue Lives Matter flag. Yeah. And that's everywhere. Yeah. Like, have I know there's been progress made, but well, John not Lewis, John enough. Lewis talked about it often. You know, he talked about the strides that the marches gave African-Americans in this country and racial justice as a whole. But with every two steps forward, there's always a step back because the system will not let you get ahead. It will keep pushing and pushing and pushing you back. And it continues to do so. 
So anyways, I, I found that very interesting. I found it, I mean, it was a little bit disheartening, um, just again, to hear, hear the kind of quote unquote headlines of that yeah. day and think, well, have we made progress? This, right. Not just this man, but many, many, many people died. Yeah. Um, I mean, throughout history, but for this particular civil rights cause. And, sure. and we owe them more than to still be doing this to each other. Yeah. Amen. That's my final word. Well, been a good uh, conversation, uh, both about what's going on in the world, as well as our uh, interview with Jonathan Ike. His book is King of Life. Make sure you pick it up. You will not regret it. And it's always good being with you, Missy. Thanks. Good to be with you, too. All right. We'll be back next week with another guest right here on Good Faith Weekly. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org. <laughs>